Hello and welcome to New Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, welcome to New Jersey is the world. Chris Gathered here, very happy to be your host. Thanks to everybody who signed up at the Patreon. We've been cranking out extra content for you over there. Patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. And hey, belowthecollar.com slash Chris Gathered if you want some of our t-shirts. Now, very unusual episode today, but one I'm very excited for you to hear. Look, here's the thing about Mike D. I've known Mike D since I was in, I think, seventh grade. And as long as I've known him, he's one of these people where every once in a while just stories unfold that you don't see coming. Unusual things happen. You wind up in adventures when you're friends with Mike D. This episode I never could have anticipated. I'm glad it happened. It ties right into the season. Halloween is upon us, and in Jersey, everybody loves Halloween, we know this. It's probably, I would say, New Jersey's collective favorite holiday, if I had to predict. And uh, this one fits the vibe of what that's like around here, when things get a little unexpected or unexplained or creepy. Anyway, you'll see what I mean soon. This is a, uh, a very unique one that could only come about from uh, the experience of knowing my friend Mike T. Enjoy it. Jean, Switzerland, 1817. In a clearing high above the water of Lake Leman, four men are standing in a circle. There's no light except the lantern blacked out to a slit, and there's no sound but shovel smashing into the frozen ground. The two men digging are dressed much too lightly for the weather, and their faces are stained with soot. The other men are finely dressed, and one has long red hair tumbling out from under his hat. He's walking in and out of the light from the lantern. The red-haired man suddenly yells out in heavily accented English, You're done. Here are your coins. Walk back into town and take the lantern with you. They walk away, and the light of the lantern fades away down the hills to where the lake is. The red-haired man kneels down and scoops dirt out of the hole with his hands, tossing it behind him. He wraps his hands into a dusting of soil, and there's the sound of metal. With the help of the second man, they remove an iron box and start the long journey back to Point Breeze, New Jersey. Hey, Tamsin, how are you? I'm well, Mike. How are you? I'm good. So, I think people listening to this... It's going to take them a minute to figure out what we're talking about. But you and I have been friends for a long time. We used to work together at a notorious British newspaper. We did. We did. Up to, I think it was about 10 years ago. I know. I can't believe that was 10 years ago. Um, I'm still scarred. Uh, and, you know, so you're, I imagine people can tell by your accent, you're not from New Jersey. I am not at all. In fact, I have never even been. Um, I am. I live in the UK, uh, but I'm actually Maltese, um, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, a very small country uh, south of Italy in the Mediterranean. It's like the New Jersey of Europe. 
Sure, yeah. On the edge, small, feisty. We, we like to pick a fight. We're always right. That is that no is exactly what. it. <laughs> that is exactly why it's the why Malta is the the New Jersey of Europe. Um, so you've you've heard our, our podcast. You've listened to a few episodes, mm-hmm. and and you and I were chatting um, as as we often do. And you said to me, "Hey, I've got this really interesting connection to New Jersey that I didn't know about." And we started talking a bit about this story, and I said to you, this is a pretty interesting story. I think some of the people who listen to the podcast would be interested in hearing about this, and you were kind enough to to agree to come on and tell us a little bit about this New Jersey connection between yourself, your family, Malta, and New Jersey that you discovered, which I found pretty amazing to, to hear. Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, I I never knew anything about any connection to anywhere outside of Europe, to be honest. Uh, But um, as I said, I'm living in the UK and uh, we, during COVID, we had many lockdowns. We measured our our year in lockdown one, lockdown two and lockdown three. And you can imagine by lockdown three, it was cold. It was February. uh, this year and it was really really miserable and so we were bored and trying to find things to do and one of the things I did was um, that ancestry thing so so you you do you do your DNA test and um, you get your your DNA and it, it sort of shows you where your ancestors are from and things like that and then it allows you to start to look through records and build out your family tree which I started doing and so as I said my DNA is like really what we expect we actually have pretty good records for my family in Malta and we go back all the way to like the 1500s and it was all really clear except for this one little bit where I have this very faint random connection somewhere between um the 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 17th and 18th century um where essentially um, it looks like I have an ancestor in New Jersey, or at least on the East Coast, um, but in that sort of area. And I couldn't figure out why until um, we, were, we were sort of working through it. And essentially, in um, 1780, I had a... It was the brother of my direct ancestor um, was, was born, and we believe he went to Naples where he became um, connected with Joseph Bonaparte and Joseph Bonaparte, brother to Napoleon Bonaparte, um, right around the time when uh, the French were trying to take over the world, really sort of the the early 1800s and and Joseph Bonaparte, which I then found out and now this is where you know more than me, um, actually exiled to New Jersey and he went to um, he he built up this this whole estate, and I'm pretty sure that my ancestor, who's called Tommaso Anastasi, he ended up with him there. And um, and and yeah, we have a sort of a few connections to that, like like a few pointers. But that's that's what I called you about. So you had no idea about the connection of. Joseph Bonaparte in New Jersey, right? This was, I don't think this is something that a lot of people know about. It's sort of a a footnote to history. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't know. I mean, I think I maybe knew Napoleon had a brother who was also a king of somewhere or other. Um, I know a lot more about Je Napoleon Bonaparte because um, he actually invaded Malta and um, and basically stole all our plundered the entire island, stole all our treasure, stole all our, our money, um, sort of pillaged all the churches and then fucked off basically and just left us all on our own and so um so i know i know a fair amount about that bit but then i didn't really know that he had a brother it turns out he made it the brother his brother the king of naples for a while and then also the king of spain and um and because my ancestor when when malta was basically starving because napoleon had taken everything and we had no money to pay for grain um we sent an emissary to naples to the king of naples at the time the king of naples um to ask him for help now we think tomaso stayed there and um and then many years later joseph bonaparte became the king of naples and i don't i mean I can guess what might have happened, but that's about it. We don't know, but we're pretty sure that Tomasa then ended up in New Jersey. So the part of the story that I can help fill in here is, right, so Joseph Bonaparte, he's Napoleon's brother. He's the king of Naples, which Naples no longer has a king, I'm assuming. Um, so Italy wasn't one right. whole place at this time and that was what was so so Naples was so Malta was actually part of Naples as well and so was Sicily so there was a whole sort of chunk of um of Italy that was that that was a kingdom wow so yeah they don't have a king anymore poor Naples they missed out on having a king <laughs> so yeah he's the king of Naples and Spain Napoleon is Napoleon. He's ravaging through Europe. He gets defeated at Waterloo, and his brother Joseph says, it's probably not a good idea for me to stick around in Europe anymore because uh, my, my brother, the emperor, has been defeated. I should probably leave. He decides that he leaves, and of all places, he gets on a ship and he heads to New Jersey. So Joseph Bonaparte, he sails to, to New Jersey and he, you know, and he spends some time in New York and Philadelphia as well. He decides that he likes New Jersey and he ends up settling in a place called Bordentown, um, which is a very, very tiny town in southern New Jersey. It actually, for a tiny town, has a pretty interesting history. Um, Thomas Paine, who was you know, one of the colonial founding fathers, he had a home there. Um, a, a, you know, There's a bunch of colonial presence there because it was right on the river and it became a big transshipment point. So anyway, Joseph Bonaparte ends up in Bordentown and he buys all this land and he builds this massive estate uh, called Point Breeze. And at the time it was built, people said it was the second most wonderful home in, in the U.S. And at this point, the U.S. is, you know, essentially people are talking about the original colonies. Um, you know, it's, it's not quite the, the U.S. that we think of it now. So, What was the first most wonderful The White House, home? which oh. I would debate... Wow. It's actually not very nice, in my opinion. <laughs> the White House is. I've, I've never been there either. Um, th but I mean, that's fascinating, right? If you think that this is, it's not like this was Napoleon, it was his brother. So to have got the 
money and the the clout and the influence to be able to do that sounds quite impressive. I can't imagine. I'm, I'm sure we can probably dig and find what the costs were, but I think, I mean, this was a massive estate, you know, lands and carriage roads and this huge home and he was employing so many people from Bordentown, New Jersey to work there that he almost became the king of Bordentown. Everyone in the town worked for him or worked on his estate in some way. So we're not talking about a you know, a tiny operation here. I mean, this is something that was seriously, um, you know, funded with money from somewhere. And so it, it stands to reason that your, you know, Tommaso, your relative, that this is really likely where this New Jersey East Coast DNA is showing up in your family, you know, that your family tree is showing up here. Yeah, yeah. So there, there is another sort of slightly weirder, more random um, bit as well, which was that I, um, so my, I, I never met my grandmother and, um, but I inherited when she died um, a piece of jewellery and it's this, um, I sent you a photo of it, I think. It's it's this like little uh, pocket watch, but it's like a woman's pocket watch. So it would, it would attach to a brooch and it's um it's enameled and it's got these sort of um these these painted details of like a fairy and it's got inlaid um little inlaid sort of jewels on it it's beautiful and um and it's it's it came in well so apparently the story is it came from america where um it's came with other things now I don't have the other things there was a story that it came in this sort of wooden box that just arrived and um but this this watch apparently came from America at the time and so th the weird thing is if you if you look at it it's 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 sort of it's clearly more maybe French in origin or or sort of that that kind of thing it's it's dated probably around the right time for Tommaso um but but it was it was always you know the, the background is always a bit of a mystery for it so um it was given to my grandmother's grandmother a great grandmother who would have been Tommaso's niece um so this sort of box of of things arrived um, and was sent back and sort of so that's part of like this this story in our family that we had this box of jewels and then that got set, got sort of shared with all the different children and then they sort of get it gets passed down the the line and the families uh, but I've got the watch for it um, and yeah so that's why I, I think there's there's it's, it is likely that that's where the connection is and I'd be curious as to whether I don't know maybe it is French and so maybe it is connected to the Bonapartes in that way um, I mean the I looked up Joseph Bonaparte's wife um, had a huge jewelry collection and and sort of things like that so it's the kind of thing that maybe would have suited I don't know maybe not her maybe her lady's maid or, or whatever but um but yeah it, it feels like it it sort of fits the 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 whole story so I mean this would have been when in the eight, late 18th century this box makes its way back to your family from New Jersey probably 
so probably close though so probably a little later and around um 1820 ish 1830-ish something like that so um the 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 the, I think there was five, the five sons of that generation were born um, 1775 through to about 1790, 1800s, sort of that type of time. And then, so it, it came back into the next generation down. So that's why I'm sort of thinking 1820, 1830. So the box comes back from New Jersey, but Tommaso does not come back. He does not. No. So, so that line from our records, like, like in Malta, we have pretty good records because it's a very small place and essentially our families are all um, interconnected, let's just say. And so, so it's quite, you know, we do have pretty good records going back and that line just doesn't go anywhere. So it just sort of disappears. And I think people assumed he just died. But the fact that there's a small bit, there isn't enough DNA to tell a story of a line, but there's there's enough to, to give me a pointer that's there. And so, yeah, maybe he did make it out there and maybe he had a son or a daughter and, and sort of that's why it's kind of, there's a flag there. So that the way the DNA part works is it's, it shows you connection, and then it also shows where that DNA connection shows up in other places around the world, right? That's how the, these searches work? Kind of, yeah. It, it's about probability. So, so you're, and, I, and please don't quote me on this, I am not a scientist, but as far as I understand, because there are so many um, sort of differences within within your DNA, or it's made up of sort of so many pieces, that um, the it's about probability of your a certain selection appearing amongst other DNA of the same thing. So so like for the rest of me, um, so there's there's big chunks that appear in Sicily. That makes total sense because our family was Sicilian originally and Malta and Sicily are right next to each other. Um, there's some in Spain and so it tracks it back through the generations. It obviously gets more diluted as you, as you go further back from, from yourself. But this is this, so it, it showed like a 0.1, no it wasn't, it wasn't that low because it wouldn't show up, but maybe like a one, less than 1%. Um, of of probability of of less than one percent of my DNA is is connected. There's a probability that it is connected to New Jersey. That's fascinating. It's it's so strange too that you you're able to, and I think this is right because you're from Malta and you do have records. We'd never be able to do this really here in the U.S. That you can trace all these branches of your family tree back, and one just dies out, and then several hundred years later you find it popped up in New Jersey I mean I never thought it would like it's not um honestly we 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 figured we know our family like uh, yeah the, the records are there so it it just this really weird anomaly and that's what got me digging and then of course naturally I went who do I know in New Jersey um, who would know about these things who likes researching and finding out history of weird things so the the watch 
and these other things. And I, I you showed me a picture of the watch. It's absolutely lovely. Um, I've never really seen anything like that outside of a museum before. Um, when when you got this in your family, what was the story that was connected to it? Was it just like, here's a watch? <laughs> I mean, initially, yes, because um, what happens is, is Maltese law is relatively straightforward when it comes to inheritance. 50% um, goes to the spouse and 50% goes to the uh, children. And then there's, there's a sort of, um, then it kind of just keeps going down like that. And, and so that, that's how sort of inheritance works. And then it's quite common for things like jewellery to then get sort of shared amongst the grandchildren as a sort of keepsake and, and that sort of thing. So that's sort of what it was. I got um, some 1920s, um, like, like a punch bowl, a 1920s punch bowl and some glasses from my grandmother. I got uh, the watch. I got a chain. Um, I think there were two rings. I mean, I was three. So, I mean, it's not like there was a plan for me to be using this stuff. I, d I didn't really, I, d I must have met her, but I don't remember. Um, and I think maybe there was the odd, these odd bits, but the whole, but the story then came afterwards when I was sort of talking to other relatives and they sort of go, oh yeah, you know, the watch was part of the box and the box came and it had all these sort of, the, these jewels and these different things in them. And um, so that was sort of the story. I mean, there's an element of, you know, it, it was considered lucky, but I mean, who knows, right? The, with these things. Wow. And there's a few other, you mentioned to you that a few of your other, other people in your family have some other pieces that were included in that box too, and they're somewhat similar. Yeah, I mean, those that I know of, because again, you know, we're going back to um, 1820s, 30s. So obviously every time the, that, that sort of family tree grows, you know, you lose touch or, or the, the, the family split. So I don't know everything that was in it or even like portions of it. I know my cousins got, um, I think there was a necklace and a ring that I vaguely remember um, people talking about. But, um, but yeah, I don't actually know what was, what was in it other than my watch. So there's two, I mean, there's really two big questions here that I am just obsessing on a little bit. The first one is, what happened to Tommaso? If, I know. Like, it just... <laughs> well, and, well, and it's interesting to me because I like questions that might be able to be answered. And so, if he disappears from your family tree, but somehow your DNA is showing there's this connection to New Jersey... Maybe there, you know, maybe the answer to what happened to mm -hmm. Tommaso is actually here in New Jersey versus, you know, in in Malta, which would be interesting. And the second one is, where did this watch come from? I mean, this is not costume jewelry. I mean, this is no. I mean, no. the picture you showed me. I'm, again, I like you're not a scientist, and I'm not an art expert, but I think we're both. You know, we we've. Been around the world a bit. This is not the kind of thing that you just, you know, pick up at a flea market. Um. 
No, no, it totally isn't. I mean, it, it is it is gold and enamel, and and it's clearly old. And um, there's photos of my great grandmother wearing it. So it it it's it's yeah. It, it you know she it was this whole Victorian setup, and she had you know the high collar, and then it's it's sort of it's there. So. Um, it, it was clearly seen as something quite special. I have no idea sort of where it came from. I mean, there is an interesting point. So, so his surname was Anastasi or Danastasi, sort of the Italian of the, the name. And I have, I did Google, I mean, you know, it depends what you find on Google, right? But, but I did Google Anastasi in New Jersey. And there's a few families there, but, but also there's so many families that would have been called Anastasia at the time it's really hard to say like we could narrow it down and, and say who it was I don't know because if it was a really strong connection then the DNA would have picked up on that so it seems to have kind of petered out um, but yeah I don't know where he, he so he seemed to have gone from I think he was like a bag carrier for the for the emissary that went off to to Naples and then he seems to have sent back a load of treasure. Like we, we have no idea what happened in the middle. I'd really like to find out. I think this is worth digging into a little. Hey, Tamsin, it's Mike. Um, so I was digging around uh, about Point Breeze and seeing what I could find out here. And I actually found out a couple of really interesting things. So Joseph Bonaparte, he's got this giant estate. Um, and I actually, I, I dug up this, it's actually new, but I tracked down this book called Empire's Eagles by Thomas Crocker, which is all about uh, the Bonaparte family in America and what happened to them. And so in this book, it says that Joseph Bonaparte, in a secret cabinet in his study, Joseph kept the collection of jewels, including the crown and rings he wore as king of Spain. The public rooms contained an art gallery with a notable collection of paintings by masters, reportedly including works by Rembrandt, Titian, Raphael, Rubens, and Da Vinci. Pretty interesting. The other thing it says is, The curtains, canopy, and furniture were of light blue satin, fancy man, trimmed with silver. Every room contained a mirror reaching from the ceiling to the floor. Over the bed hung a splendid mirror and one over the table. The walls were covered with oil paintings, principally of young females, with less clothing about them than you would have found comfortable in our cold climate. In every room of the house there were statues of Napoleon in different positions. To the statue of his sister Pauline, in particular, the Count called our attention and asked us to admire it. He stood sometime perfectly enraptured before it, pointing out to us with a beautiful head Pauline had, what hair, what eyes, what nose, what mouth, what chin. So that's, that's Joseph Bonaparte. Um, but the interesting part is he was living in this mansion in New Jersey that was completely filled with treasure and had a secret cabinet where he kept the crown jewels of Spain, among other things. Hey Mike, it's Hansen. Um, th th Joseph Bonaparte sounds like a really fancy man. I mean, I'm not sure I quite expected the blue satin and all the mirrors. Mirror above the bed is also a bit dodgy. Um, so I have found this watchmaker uh, who's just reopened after um, COVID and stuff, and he's going to clean the watch and he's going to 
I don't know, take it apart, have a look at it and see if he can find any kind of hallmark that uh, we might be able to use. So I'll let you know how that goes. So continuing our, our Joseph Bonaparte adventure here, check this out. This is, this is ve a very odd story. So Joseph Bonaparte had a, a secretary, um, you know, in the, in the very 18th century version of being a secretary, you know, a, a manservant, a, a butler, a trusted confidant. Uh, his name was Louis Maillard. So in 1817, he sends, he sends his, his person, Louis Maillard, to Switzerland on a secret mission. Uh, so Louis Maillard gets on a boat from the U.S. and he's heading over to Switzerland. He gets in a shipwreck off the coast of Ireland. He eventually is rescued from the shipwreck. He makes his way to Germany and he goes through Switzerland. On this whole trip, Louis Maillard, who, who is a Frenchman like, like the Bonaparte, is wearing a red wig and disguised as an English tourist. And he goes to Switzerland to some piece of land that the Bonapartes own. And he goes there with some other people and he starts digging around this property and he digs up an entire box of jewels and papers that Joseph Bonaparte had told him were hidden there. So he actually digs up this buried treasure. He finds it and Maillard gets back on a ship and sails across to the U.S. and brings this back to Point Breeze in New Jersey. I thought that was just such a strange thing that they're burying treasure around Europe and bringing it back to New Jersey. What else are what else are they bringing back to New Jersey from Europe? I don't know. That was a weird one. I I just thought it was interesting. You'd want to hear that. Hey Mike, um, I, I, I really don't even know what to say about the idea of this mad Frenchman running around in a redhead wig um, <laughs> trying, to, trying to disguise himself as an Englishman whilst digging up jewels. Um, I mean, the things you go to, we don't go through that length with our boss, did we? But um, So I actually found um, something that kind of ties in with some of that, but this would have been from earlier, or a lot earlier. But um, I found this reference of when Joseph left um, Spain. So essentially when he was panicking because um, Napoleon lost Waterloo. And, um, and he basically, he left Spain under an assumed name. And they used the name, or he used the name, Lazar Carno. Or Carnot, but I don't think the C is pronounced in French. So Lazar Carno. So if you can find anything that, that references there... He apparently, um, he, he sailed incognito aboard um, an American brig called uh, Commerce in New York. Um, and it, the captain was apparently paid 18,000 francs to carry. So I don't know what that would have been then. But um, yeah, so, so see if you can find anything to do with uh, Lazar Cano. Um, oh, and also I got in touch with my... Um, distant cousins and um, I was telling them about the watch and trying to find a bit more history and somebody said they may have a photo of the um, of the box of the infamous box so they're going to see if they can dig it out but um, yeah I'll send it over to you if I find it okay bye 
hey, I'm about to walk out the door, and guess where I'm going? Point Breeze. Uh, it's actually not that far from from where we live, so I figured it's actually a pretty nice October day today. It's a little foggy, but going to jump in the car, head on down to Point Breeze, and just get eyes on it, see what it looks like, do a little bit of hiking and exploring. Uh, I'll let you know how it goes later. So who was Joseph Bonaparte, and what does he have to do with New Jersey? Joseph Bonaparte was a diplomat, a lawyer, and he was also the king of Naples and Sicily from 1806 to 1808. He was also the king of Spain from 1808 to 1813. And while he was the king of Spain, the people of Spain nicknamed him Joey Bottles because they said he really, really enjoyed a drink. And of course, he was the older brother of Napoleon Bonaparte, who was the emperor of the French. Um, unlike Napoleon, Joseph was someone who loved to spend his time reading and gardening. He really enjoyed art and had a massive art collection. And he was also extremely involved in the inner workings of politics. And Napoleon had a lot of siblings, but Joseph was the one that he was always the closest to. And they spent quite a bit of time together throughout their life. And Joseph was also really important in the early part of the French, French Revolution. Uh, he was born in Corsica and he took part in, in the Civil War along with Napoleon there. And you know, after the opposition emerged the winners, the Bonaparte family fled from Corsica. And later on, this is when he became king of Naples and then king of Spain. He was supposedly a good king of Naples and people liked him. The Spanish hated him as kings. Um, and then eventually when Napoleon is defeated at Waterloo, like the rest of the Bonaparte family, Joseph Bonaparte has to flee Europe under penalty of death. So he gathers up as much of his treasure, including the crown jewels of Spain, and he gets on a ship, and he sails across the ocean, and he spends some time in New York, and he spends some time in Philadelphia, and eventually he ends up purchasing a large tract of land what is near Bordentown, New Jersey and South Jersey, and he erects over time a massive estate there where he lives quite happily for a long time and is almost seen as the king of Bordentown. And this estate that he built, the remnants of which are still there, is called Point Breeze. Out here deep in Bordentown, New Jersey, uh, at the former site of Point Breeze, Joseph Bonaparte's estate. Um, looks like we're at the trailhead for the Bordentown Bluffs. We're going to head in and uh, see what we can find, see what old Joey Bonaparte uh, left behind for us. Pretty well-worn trail here. It's definitely been here a long time. Um, ground's kind of sandy like the Pine Barrens, but, but these aren't pines. It's like much denser, um, kind of northeast foliage. It looks like the trail heads due south 
and then before too long we'll probably the Crosswick Creek and then down from that to the Delaware so we got a hand-painted sign left to the beach right to the Yellow Blaze Trail on Orchard Avenue but we're we're up on a bluff above the Crosswick Creek it's really really pretty here um, and really really quiet Here on top of the bluff, um, there's actually a little beach at the top of the bluff looking down over the Crosswick Creek. Um, a lot of cattails, no people whatsoever. And the creek, they call it a creek, but um, for New Jersey folks, this is definitely a river. I mean, it looks as big and wide as uh, the mighty Passaic from where I'm standing. Okay, that was weird. Um, hopefully I caught the tail end of that when, when I heard that really strange, really loud, really not natural sound coming out of the woods here. Um, I don't know what that was. Um, I've never heard that sound hiking in the woods anywhere. Um, part of me hopes that we hear it again so I can get a better recording of it, but... The other part of me probably doesn't ever need to hear that sound again. So coming down off the bluff, now we're crossing over what looks like the creek bed, but it's completely dry, and it's all sand. There's lots of stones in here, and some of them are definitely um, pieces of stone that look like they came from, you know, old construction, like pieces of bricks and stuff like that. Um, you know, not just natural stones, but the whole creek bed is, is just sand, moist sand with no water. Way up at the top of the bluffs now. Um, and I can see the Crosswick Creek, the entire thing, um, and all the marshes and wetlands going way, way off into the distance, um, over where it meets up the Delaware River, and I recognize the island in front of us, which is on all the maps going back as far as I can find, so even the original maps of the Bonaparte lands that I dug up, you can see this island, and it looks like the island's shrunk over time, but it's a pretty recognizable sort of oval type shape and it's standing here right in front of us so we're definitely in the right place and we're definitely taking in the right view looks like the trail is all decorated for halloween got a pumpkin right underneath the blaze uh, happy october in new jersey so the path along the bluff edge was surely first walked by Native Americans. Other parts of the trail are remnants of carriage roads. This area was once part of Joseph Bonaparte's 2,000-acre Point Breeze estate. Huh. Bonaparte lived in a mansion near here from 1816 to 1839. So we are definitely in the right place. So this is an old, old area for people. 
Um, so it says the archaeological records dating from 10,500 to 8,000 BC show a sizable Native American population beginning about 6,000 BC. So that makes this one of the most significantly settled sites in the eastern U.S. Um, at their highest point, the bluffs rise 60 feet above Crosswick Creek, which is where we're walking along the top of that bluff. Um, and then the sediment contains deposits of clay used by the Lenape for bowls and other pottery items. So there was a bunch of that we saw in the creek bed. And the first European landowner in 1682 was Thomas Farnsworth, a Quaker. And then the most famous was Joseph Bonaparte. Um, yeah, it's really old here. People have been living here a long, long time. Point Breeze was the estate built by Joseph Bonaparte near Bordentown, New Jersey. By all accounts, Point Breeze was a spectacular holding. Joseph expanded it to more than 1,200 acres. In a sharp departure from formal French and indeed European and American garden design at the time, he developed the grounds as a carefully planned, naturalized wilderness or picturesque landscaping. He based the concept on his chateau at Mortfontaine in the Picardy region of northern France. The result was little short of revolutionary in terms of garden design in America. The park-like estate was traversed by 12 miles of drives and bridle paths that wound through the forested landscape, decorated at strategic spots with statuary. The landscaping also included rustic cots or rain shelters, bowers and seats, sheltered springs, and solitary retreats. Joseph dammed a small stream to create a lake 200 yards wide and a half mile long. It was dotted with small islands and swans graced the waters. The grounds at Point Breeze later influenced Frederick Law Olmsted's design for Central Park in New York City, as well as the development of Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. The house itself was a wonder built on a 100-foot-high bluff at the confluence of the Delaware River and Crosswicks Creek and boasting sweeping views up and down river. Joseph turned the mansion into an enclave of regal Europe in New Jersey just across the river from Philadelphia. That's from Empire's Eagles by Thomas E. Crocker. And then... Much later on in our time, since 2006, Richard Vell, a professor of archaeology at Monmouth, Co uh, Monmouth College here in New Jersey, he's led several archaeological digs on the property of Point Breeze, and the digs have unearthed over 20,000 artifacts, including shards of ceramic tableware, glass, wine bottles, door hardware, tapestry buttons, and Many of the artifacts are charred by the 1820 fire at Point Breeze. So continuing our, our Joseph Bonaparte adventure here, check this out. This is, this is ve a very odd story. So Joseph Bonaparte had a, a secretary, um, you know, in the, in the very 18th century version of being a secretary, you know, a, a manservant, a, a butler, a trusted confidant. Uh, his name was Louis Maillard. So... In 1817, he sends, he sends his, his person, Louis Maillard, to Switzerland on a secret mission. Uh, so Louis Maillard gets on a boat from the U.S., and he's heading over to Switzerland. He gets in a shipwreck off the coast of Ireland. He eventually is rescued from the shipwreck, 
he makes his way to Germany and he goes through Switzerland. On this whole trip, Louis Maillard, who, who is a Frenchman like, like the Bonaparte, is wearing a red wig and disguised as an English tourist. And he goes to Switzerland to some piece of land that the Bonapartes own. And he goes there with some other people and he starts digging around this property and he digs up an entire box of jewels and paper that Joseph Bonaparte had told him were hidden there. So he actually digs up this buried treasure, he finds it, and Maillard gets back on a ship and sails across to the U.S. and brings this back to Point Breeze in New Jersey. I thought that was just such a strange thing that they're burying treasure around Europe and bringing it back to New Jersey. What else are what else are they bringing back to New Jersey from Europe? I don't know. That was a weird one. I I just thought it was interesting. You'd want to hear that. Um, hey, I think I got the time wrong again. Um, time zones plus five, right? I've I've got the wrong time. Um, I'm gonna send you. I've emailed you a photo, or I'll email you a photo of um, what the watchmaker found. He, he found this really sort of weird marking um, inside the watch. It's kind of cool. Uh, but yeah, so I'll email you that and then call me whenever we are supposed to be speaking because I don't know what time it's meant to be. Bye. Hey, Tamsin. So we finally got the time zones right after. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's just confusing. I mean, it shouldn't be, but 24-hour clocks are just one step beyond me. And I think it's good because we're the last two people in the world uh, using voicemail. So we're keeping voicemail in business. <laughs> well, somewhere between me at work when you're when you're up or me asleep when you're up and me at work and you're at work when I'm able to speak I think it's the only way we're going to get through yeah this. I agree and that's the other thing is right but yeah between the time difference work and everything it's just easier to right to leave a leave a voicemail yeah. to you know because <laughs> email is not as much fun I think agreed um, <laughs> um so but in email did you get the image I sent I did you? wow um so, yeah, so basically I, after we spoke um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I took um, my watch to get cleaned and, um, and I explained to the, to the guy like how we were looking for some kind of um, just hint of where it came from and what it was and stuff. And he, he put it, so he, there, there's, a, there's a standard inscription at the back and um, there was nothing like it's not a personal one like about how it was made um but he then somewhere inside it because it's sort of got three sections that opens up um he 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 basically put it under different colored lights which makes it sound very csi but i've don't he tried to explain it to me i didn't really understand but he he managed to basically pull out this this sort of negative image of this symbol it's like tiny that's etched into it and I just thought it was fascinating. Like, I don't really know what it is, but and I, I emailed you a photo of it. But basically, it, it's sort of got a series of, of it's sort of diamond shaped. And then inside that, it's, it's split up and it's got this series of um, letters. And, and there's a number, there's a two on the left hand side. And um, yeah, 
mysterious. It looks alchemical to me, too. Oh. Right. It has. Um, I, I'm not saying that it is, but when I the first thing I thought of <laughs> when I looked at it was something, you know, like John D, the Enochian language of angels, some, <laughs> something like that. It's very, very strange. And even as a a big typography nerd um, myself, I hadn't really come across something like this. It, it's. Oh, I mean, he hadn't either. He said that it wasn't a standard hallmark because we found that, you know, the three little squares that you usually see sort of stamped into jewellery. Um, th- this was, yeah, I mean, it does seem a little sort of symbolic. There's there's the middle, there's a sort of big R with, with like a D and a, and a sort of symbol underneath it. There seems to be LC above which I kind of got excited about because I'd sent you that that note around um that he used to use that name um um Lazar Carno or whatever it was um but but I I mean there's only the the LC so I don't know what else it could stand for there's an H there's an E and then at the top of it there's a sort of I so yeah no idea but maybe we'll find something that it refers to yeah there's um there's a couple of people that I'm going to send it to. And, and one of them, um, this person who we always, we always try to keep people's names off this, but it's somebody that, that I am related to who happens to work at a pl- institution where they have all these types of records. Um, so I'm going to see if, if there's anything that, that he can dig up for us on that. Cause it's really cool. interesting. I, I found a couple of other, you know, I don't, they're not quite strange, but a couple other things that, that kind of make the story a little less, less clear than I think, um, we initially thought. So in, in 1820 Point Breeze, um, you know, there, you know, Joseph Bonaparte would always have guests in and out. He was basically living like a European royal in southern New Jersey. So there's always a large retinue of people around. And one of the guests left a fire unattended. And the house, the, the mansion, Point Breeze, catches on fire. The whole place catches on fire. Yeah. Shit. And the lore has it that Joseph Bonaparte was out and he was just coming back in his carriage and he sees the entire mansion in flames. And I think I, I said this when we were talking a couple of weeks ago, but you know, everyone in Bordentown, the town where Point Breeze was, loved him because he gave everyone jobs. And when he came up and saw his mansion on fire, all the, the townspeople from Bordentown were running in and out of the mansion, saving everything from the fire. So taking out all the artwork, taking out all the jewelry, um, and just running in and out to save his, his belongings and his treasure. And, you know, he says because he had such a good relationship with the people that that nothing was missing by his count. But it's kind of interesting that you have this, you know, all these villagers townspeople running in and out of a mansion filled with treasure uh and you know seeing what what's happened to it a a couple other like i just thought that that was interesting too because you know the house burns down things go missing in fires i mean what i find kind of interesting is you said last time that um or one of your messages that there was like a secret hiding place for jewels so i wonder if 
like they wouldn't have known about that right so he seems to like to hide his jewels this dude he he, he does the the other um he clearly likes to hide things and um he also he also there was apparently another home um that that he built nearby Point Breeze called Maison du Lac and don't laugh at my French accent because I don't have one um, which was close by Point Breeze and these two homes were were connected by an underground brick tunnel um, and there's been there's all kinds of, of speculation that I found about these tunnels so some people said that the tunnels were used for for burying treasure um, and hiding wealth. Other people said that it was probably um, designed so that they could escape in case of assassins, right? Because one of the big fears that Joseph Bonaparte probably rightly had was that, you know, the new establishment in Europe was going to send over assassins to kill him to essentially make sure that, that any claim that he might have on the, the Napoleonic Empire was completely extinguished. So, you know, and also portions of the tunnel still exist, which I think is kind of fascinating. So this is getting, you know, things aren't quite as cut and dry as I initially thought they were here. <laughs> He's a bit of a... Um, Bit of a strange bird, Joseph Bonaparte. Yeah. I mean, that sounds fascinating that he he had those escape routes. So, I mean, I wonder if they used those for when the, the fire was, was going on and sort of maybe some of the stuff they didn't want to take out the front door. Because um, that, that, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I mean, it, it's interesting that you say there's there was sort of, there was treasure that he put on show and maybe stuff that he wouldn't because um so i I think i mentioned to you before but basically napoleon um stole all the the gold and and um and all the the sort of wealth out of malta he he needed um to fund the um egyptian side of his um his battles basically and um or the war and so he he came to Malta and he sort of um, ransacked the place, and then he th- there's there's kind of different there's three different varieties of the story, uh, but one was that he split everything into two pe- two boats. One boat went um, was being sent back to France, but it was actually intercepted by uh, Nelson. And so uh, the all of the treasure that was supposed to go uh, to France um, actually ended up uh, in the British hands, and so likely in a um, somewhere down in the um, basement at the London Museum, um, you know, Elgin marbles, all that stuff. Um, the the British were known for for holding on to things. Um, so that's that's one, and that was one boat. And then the other boat went to um, Egypt. And Napoleon took it to Egypt, and the idea was that he um, needed to either sell things or melt down the gold, and to um, to fund basically to pay the soldiers, right? So the soldiers were fighting the war, and they needed to be paid. Um, but when he Nelson was quite quite close on his tail, and um, when he got to Egypt, they had a battle on uh, a naval battle on the Nile, and Napoleon's boat was sunk. And so the story is that 
half of this Maltese gold ended up or is still at the bottom of the Nile. So this boat with 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 all this gold might be might still be there. Um, I think there was meant to be an excavation, but then COVID started, and and I'm not sure what happened there. But there's there's essentially two lots of potentially missing treasure, and it does make you wonder whether that made its way to Joseph at some part, as in some of it did, and then that was what. Um, Louis Maynard brought back to, you know, when they hid it in Switzerland and then he brought back and maybe that's what they took out via the tunnels because it was sort of, I know, like contraband. Wow. I, I wonder, I, I mean, because the Malta treasure, right, is not a box of gold. I mean, this is a significant, I mean, it's ship's worth of stuff that's missing. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. So I'm, I'm only saying like maybe it was a very small amount of it. Oh, I don't know. I'm just sort of inventing really how the, how this could have gone. There was um, there were antiquities deal dealers in Egypt that used to deal um, deal with the French, and so um, yeah, I mean maybe they maybe Napoleon actually offloaded most of the stuff before the the, the galleon sank, and um, you know maybe some of it got sold and then ended up back with Joseph somehow, that sort of thing. But nobody's ever found it, right? And it's pretty, would be pretty recognizable because it all came from churches and, you know, places like that. Yeah, I mean, if they, if they found it excavating the boat, then yeah, definitely they could have. I mean, if it was ju just random pieces, probably not. So, who knows? Wow. Interesting. That, uh, those, those Bonaparte brothers definitely seem to have a big interest in other people's treasure and squirreling it away. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. I'm really curious about about seeing if we can ever track down this this symbol on your watch. Um yeah, I'm I'm very very curious to see if there's any you know, if if that symbol is appears anywhere else, if that's even the kind of thing that can be looked up or found. Um seems pretty obscure yeah. no me too i mean it'd be great you know see what see what you can find and i'll i'll keep asking my family here and see how it goes yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to our friend who knows about that stuff and see what i can dig up okay talk cool. to you soon okay this one you're not gonna believe um but you'll have to believe because I'm going to send you a link. There is another watch extremely similar to yours. Um, that, so uh, let, me, let, me, let me rewind here. And I'm jumping all over the place because this is just kind of blowing my mind. So I, I, after we talked last time, I pulled the thread a bit on the Louis Mayard and essentially what happened to him um so i i was tracing his his family through here and i was able to find that there is went up for auction not too long ago um in the last 10 years or so what they're calling a napoleonic locket with a picture of joseph bonaparte 
and included with this were a whole bunch of you know other pieces of jewelry from this this same collection and these were actually put up for auction um, and obtained from a relative of Louis Maillard. So this piece of jewelry is very, very similar to the one that you have. And it's, it's actually really, really uncanny. So I'll send you a link to this. this. This piece of jewelry exists. Take a look at it and compare them and let me know what you think. And the other strange part about it is so so this locket they're calling it a locket but it looks so much like the, the watch that you have um it has miniature art and inscriptions that are really really tiny and it's hard to see them without a magnifying glass and obviously i'm just looking at pictures on the internet one of the descriptions is, is making a reference to the legend of the jersey devil which you would have no idea what that is, but because you're not from New Jersey, but I'll explain it to you. But anyway, we, we've got to talk because this is really, really strange. Um, so let's catch up whenever we can when time zones align. I can't believe you have found another watch that is huge. Um, but I have something too, because you said about the Jersey Devil, never heard of the Jersey Devil before. Um, but... I did get a picture of um, the box, right? So, so I think it was it was taken like years ago, and it's a it's a blow up of a photo of a photo. So it's going to be a bit grainy, but I've sent it over to you. It's it seems to be the same thing. Like it's a face, like it's a devil face with the tongue hanging out, and you just check your emails because I can't describe it. It's all kind of carved into wood. And it seems to be exactly the same thing. So this is just really weird. So it seems like COVID is over. Work is back to normal, which means travel is back. Um, I'm going to be in New York in about 10 days time. Um, I don't know the dates yet, but I will message you my um, schedule and let's find some time I can come over. And if I can get a weekend out of it, I'll try and stay on and um, let's go and find these tunnels. <laughs>